I'll be reading uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Stories are the language of the soul. They have a way of touching our hearts like few other influences can. This is why Jesus used storytelling so often to illustrate deeper truths. He knew the power of a story to cut through to the heart. These now famous stories are known as parables. They were Jesus's way to communicate important kingdom principles in a form that we could remember, in a way that would touch us. Although the details of these stories were fictional, the kingdom principles are not. They are true, they are eternal. Today, these stories continue to remind us who God is, what he calls us to be a part of, and how much he loves us. And today's parable, or today's message especially, we're entitling Ears to Hear. There's some kingdom principles that we want to follow. When I think of that ears to hear, you finish, fill in the blank for me. That's why God gave you two ears and one. Oh, you heard that from your mom too, or your school teacher. Yeah. It is important that we are able to hear, and that we have ears to hear, and not just hear, to understand, and not just to understand what we, you know, what we think's right, but to be able to grow in that understanding as well. And that's the struggle today in these parables, is people who are coming and getting to know Jesus, but they are carrying the baggage with him and can't really hear what he's saying, so he speaks to them in parables. Now, to help illustrate that point, I obviously am not the youngest guy on, uh, in this auditorium right now, and I kind of get behind on slang, so I was doing some research on some Gen Z slang, and I found out I was flunking miserably, so I've asked one of our youth group guys to come and help me out. Brett, where are you? Brett Holly, you around? Yeah, youth group's giving it up for Brett. So Brett, thanks so much. Let's, let's move over here so your, your friends can see you loud and proud, all right? Hey guys, so yeah, you didn't trust me with this one. I didn't trust me with this one. So here's Brett. So Brett, here's the, I, I've got some G, Gen Z slang. I'm gonna give you a word. You give me a definition, right. and I'll I'll see how close I got to it. First one is bussin. Okay. So bussin's like when that food is like really delicious or good. So like that spaghetti is bus bus or bussin. Bussin, bussin. See how I did. Bussin. And the screen says, transportation to school. No, didn't quite make that. All right, here's the next phrase, the goat, the goat. Uh, so that's pretty common, so like greatest of all times, so like you're talking like Michael Jordan or uh, LeBron James, like so any like the greatest of all time, like the goats, or goat, he's the greatest, goat, right? Greatest. All right, let's see how I did on this one. A domesticated animal with horns, missed that one too. All right, how about this one, cap. I got this okay. one. So cap, basically, it's like, um, it's like you and your friend are like playing a game or something, and he's like, 
yeah, I've, I've done all this and I've got all this. And you're like, that's cap. Like, that's lie. Like, and then no cap is like, that's not lie. Like, that's truth. It's like cap is like them lying, but no cap is them not lying. I think I missed this one. <laughs> I tried a covering for your head. So here's one I thought was new. I'm hearing it's old now, but throwing shade. Yeah, that's a little old, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> throwing shade is like whenever it's like... Don't, don't listen. It was, it's three years old, guys. Four, maybe. <laughs> and then Go ahead. Th throwing shade is just like whenever you're like kind of talking bad about your friend. You're like always throwing shade on him or he's like always doing that and all that. So kind of throwing bad on him. So it's not when you stand next to a very large person no. in their shadow? No. Hmm. Okay. Flex. Flex. Okay, so that's like... A lot of people think like physically flexing, but a lot of people like to flex, but like, oh, I'm going to Harvard, got a 4.0, I'll clean lift 400 pounds, look at me go. That's just like you bragging on about life kind of thing. Flex. It's not being able to bend without breaking? No. Okay. I get this last one though, bet. Bet, okay, so common misconception. People would think bet means to disagree on something. It actually means to agree on something. So like when you're going out for coffee with your friend and you're like, let's go get coffee, they're like, bet, and you guys go get coffee. Bet, it's, yeah. it's not something my parents would not let me do. No. Okay. All right, so you, you heard the definitions of the, these words. So just, you know, you, I hope everybody with gray hair finds a way to use these in a conversation today. The youth group would love hearing that. So I tried to build them into a conversation between me and Brett. So here's the conversation. So pretend we're after church. Hey, Brett, my, my sermon was bussing today, wasn't That's it? That's straight cap. Straight cap, no. But when it comes to preaching, you got to admit, I am the goat. Not cap, still cap. Cap. Man, why are you throwing so much shade my way? I mean, I'm just tired of watching you flex all the time, man. I don't know what to say. And the entire church says, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. You did great. Uh, there are a bunch others, but uh, I look forward to hearing more of them. But here, here's the whole point. In the parables of today, there are people coming to Jesus who can't understand what Jesus is saying because they're stuck in the past. And he's going to tell these stories to try and get them to understand. He's going to end this group of parables with this passage in, in Matthew 13, verse 51. He's going to look at the disciples who are following him and says, Have you understood all these things? <laughs> Which, you know, and their answer is yes. And so he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, by the way, teachers of the law, in that day and age, the first listeners knew that to be the people who had studied the Torah, the Old Testament, the people at the synagogue who were very intelligent in the Old Testament and the law. So he says, Since you understand these parables that we're fixing to look at, Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple, in other words, you are now teachers of the law, in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And he's saying, as my disciples, those old treasures are still there, and they are treasures to learn and value and grow from. But you have learned these new treasures, and it is your job to help communicate these new as well as old treasures in this world. Because you get it. You understand. 
Admittedly, it's hard to understand new things. So Jesus is going to try and help them understand what life is like in this new kingdom that he is bringing. Have you ever been to a foreign country? It's a lot of fun. I, I've had the blessing to go to a few. My favorite way to travel to a foreign country is as a, on a mission trip. My first trip overseas was on a mission trip to Germany. The thing I love about going to a foreign country as a, on a mission trip is you stay in the homes or you stay with people from that area. Well, you might see some of the sites, which are interesting, but you get to see beyond the sites to where people live and how they live, what it means for them to get to work every day and how do they handle the daily parts of life. If, if you've ever been to a foreign country and on a mission trip and, and worshiped with them, isn't it pretty common that when we're like maybe observing the Lord's Supper that you think of them and what's happening in that place right at that moment? But as I fell in love with these people in these places, that happens to me not just, just during worship, but during the week as I'm going about life. I wonder what the weather's like now. I wonder what it's like for them to commute to work and, and try and envision that because I've, I've been there. One of my favorite ways to travel is on mission trips. And Jesus is wanting his disciples to see what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Right now, right here. And in Matthew 13, today's passages, we're going to look at like six parables that show us what kingdom living's like. We don't have time to dive deep into any of them, much less all of them. But what I'd like to do is to take a, a big a high-level principle from each of the parables and apply it to kingdom living and how that could apply for us today. So let's start in verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, Because pull, while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let's let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So with this first parable, we're just going to take a look at it as a whole and highlight just a few things that show us what life in the kingdom is like. And first of all, life in the kingdom includes existing with evil. Evil still exists. Now, the kingdom here, many people say, is, is the church, and definitely is. And they go back to the previous parable we talked about last week and said when Satan can't... can't uh, pick up the weed, the, the seed off the hard ground or whatever, um, he'll just plant weeds in, in with it or in the church. And, de and definitely the kingdom includes the church. But for today, I also want us to think about the kingdom as a place where we live and dwell. And in this world, we live in the presence of evil. So the owner's servants come and say, wait a second, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Where did all these weeds come from? The presence of evil. Living in this world means that we live with evil. And evil's wrong. It's bad. 
It's not fair. It's not right. Evil is when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. It's just not right. Evil is the rule and the reign of Satan in so many ways. And so the parable, in this parable, the servants ask a tough, one of the toughest questions that believers and followers of Jesus have asked all over through the years, and I imagine you have asked it, and no matter our age, I imagine at times we still ask this question. God, if you are so good and all-powerful, where, where does evil come from? And much less, why is evil even permitted? And immediately, the, the master answers the question, and he puts ownership where it belongs. He says, the enemy did this. An enemy did it. God does not generate evil. God is not, should not be associated with evil at all. The enemy is Satan, and the enemy caused the problem. The weeds are from him. However, the weeds can't stop the growth of the wheat. And so the servants ask the natural response. I mean, it's my typical response most of the time as well. And they ask him, do you want us to go and pull them up? I want to do something. I want to jump in with both feet. And when I do, I oftentimes do more damage than I do good. That's what he explains in the next verses. I think these next verses are especially written for me. No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. I mean, I'm a fix-it kind of person. Are you? When, when somebody brings me a problem, I immediately want to come up with solutions and possibilities and answers. I want to fix it. I am a fix-it type person, except when it comes to our broken microwave at the house right now. Not, not so well. In fact, I find when I try and fix things, they oftentimes come out worse than they started. Plumbing is definitely in that boat with me, and I mean boat. My fixing often includes more brokenness, not less. And often, when I try to fix things, in the doing, there is more damaging. It hurts me, and it hurts the one I, ones I love. Instead, I need to learn to trust in God. So here's what the master says. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The message here is God and his angels are better at doing the separating than I am. But that doesn't mean I do nothing. That is, that's not what he's saying. I do something. And the something I do for today is to help the good seed grow. That's what I need to look out for. How can I help the good in this world grow? And to say it another way, I need to not stop, and maybe you as well, focusing on the weeds, on the evil so much that I forget to nurture the good. Because there's good out there as well. The sorting is coming, but unfortunately, that's not my job. Today, I want to be one that helps the good outgrow the evil. And don't for a minute things think that means that we shouldn't care. I care. You should care about the wrongs in the world. And it doesn't mean that we are passive. We're not to ignore it. 
But it does mean that in the midst of the evil of this world, we do good. We help growth happen. In Matthew chapter 5, there's a little passage that says, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. You remember that little phrase? The verses before it describes what that means. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who, who per persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And when we act like the Father, even in the midst of the evil of the world, we are being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So don't worry about the sorting. Leave that up to God and his angels. And he continues this point. He talks about how in this kingdom, good can rise above the evil. So he tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seed, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches you know the point is not so much my actions but the actions of God and God will though sometimes it's hard to see God will bring good out in the end he'll bring it to fruition we need to have faith that God will act sometimes even in the smallest of things and in the smallest of ways God is at work even though we might not perceive it or see it happening. God is there working. So size and relative power do not indicate final results. So when evil looms large in this world and in our lives, when things are bad, trust in God to sort it out in the end. Because God is working and can take the little good that is often overlooked and use it to bring shelter and comfort and peace. An example of that is Joseph in Egypt. You remember the brothers were very upset with Joseph in the story, and so they, they, they sold him into slavery. What a terrible thing. And he finds himself in Egypt. And even in Egypt, he tries to do the right thing, and he just keeps getting in more and more trouble. He finds himself in prison. Until finally, as you know, the story becomes second in charge. And he is helping a nation not, in a world not starve. So much so that his brothers finally make it down to Egypt. And when they figure out who he is, they are very frightened. But Joseph says these powerful words. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good and to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Satan means things for harm, but God can work through those things in ways we sometimes can't see to bring good. And so in this kingdom, another principle to live by is that good can overcome evil. And make the point, he tells another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. 60 pounds. 60 pounds. That's a lump of dough. I mean, that's, that's big. I have no idea how much flour it takes to make one loaf of bread. But if it were one pound per loaf, which that could be definitely off, that's a lot of bread. That is a lot of dough. 
And yet you take in just a little yeast and it works its way through the entire batch of dough. And here's what God's saying. God can permeate evil. The dough is to represent the evil. He can permeate and change evil. Not to good, but to make good come from it. And this is very important. God to take a little goodness and change and permeate evil to where good is an end result. Many of you have leaned on Romans 8, 28 many times in your life, and I have as well. Many times I might lean on it in a way that I really don't think is what the verse is saying. But let me make this one small point without diving deeply into the context and the text of Romans 8. The text says, and, and we know that in all things God's, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the one simple point I want to make that I think is true is this passage does not mean that God takes something evil and makes that evil good. Listen, there's been some evil things that have happened in your life, bad things, and they are bad things. They are evil things. They are wrong. It was unfair, and they are still wrong, and they are still unfair. But God, when we act with a little bit of goodness in those moments, can take that and bring good out of the evil. doesn't change it to a good thing. It just brings good out of the bad thing. It permeates the evil, and at the other end, it changes things. Good comes from it. Later in Romans, he continues to make the point about how good can overcome evil in chapter 12, verse 20, where he says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, if somebody's doing some evil to you, do a little goodness. Just do a little goodness. And he ends with these words. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with good. Just a little bit of good, a tiny seed, a little leaven, a small act of kindness and goodness can work through the evil that is about us. And God can permeate that evil and bring good out of it. So as we live in this kingdom, he's going to make the point again of how we should live. And we should live in this kingdom knowing there will be an end result. We won't see it necessarily today, but there is an end result. An end result of evil and an end result of goodness. Verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the end result of evil. That's what will happen. Separation from God which brings great sorrow and gnashing of teeth. There's an end result of goodness as well. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Shine like the sun. In the kingdom of the Father. That's what I want. A place where evil has been eradicated. Wow. Is that what you want? If so, let me give you a couple of principles to follow from the parables that deal with pursuing and possessing that wonderful truth. First of all, let's look at it, the unexpected treasure. And it's in Matthew 13, verse 44. 
It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. All right, so you, can, you look at that verse, and I want to make a few points. First of all, Kent, this is Kent only. When I look at this, I think first of Gentiles. They, the people that would be coming to meet Jesus who didn't necessarily know the Bible that well or it wasn't a part of their tradition or their heritage or the growing up. And he said, and all of a sudden you found this treasure hidden in this field. How, how wonderful is that, is that beautiful truth? So now that you have it, you weren't looking for it, but you have it. Now pursue it. Now the first hearers of this would have had this image go through their mind. They would have seen a day worker working out in a field and find this treasure. Now, a day worker in that day and age was not like what we have in the United States. You know, here we believe that if a man just works hard enough and is dedicated and has a good work ethic, he will rise. He will be able to change. He can change both his life, his family's life, and the future of his family. So just work hard and grind it out. That was not necessarily the truth then. You could have the hardest worker, the best worker with the best work ethic, best intentions, the best goodness, and that day worker could likely never change being a day worker. He, he couldn't change his, his outlook on, on life. So here you have this day worker, a great guy that has no hope of ever changing anything for himself, his family, or his future. Goes into a field and he finds a treasure. Now, I know you're struggling. That's, that's an immoral thing to do. The guy should tell the owner of the field and, and let him have the treasure. Jesus is not trying to make that moral point. He's trying to make this point. Technically, the first hearers, likely they would have heard, if you find that treasure, and if you don't dig it up, but instead leave it buried and then go by the field, then you would own it. But if you dig it up, the master. Whatever the case is, here's the point Jesus is trying to make. He could do nothing to change his outlook in life. And all of a sudden, he found a treasure that could change everything for him, his family, and his future. And so he went away, and even though he didn't have much, about all he had was what his, his mom had given him from, and his grandma had left him and, and a few little things, but he happily sold everything that he'd ever treasured in his life so he could go buy that field and get that treasure and everything would be changed. Wow. And that brought him joy. He sold with joy because life could be changed. What could not change can now be changed. What hard work could not do, this treasure can now do. The Jews would have related as well. I mean, they grew up with traditions, the atonement of sacrifice, offering sacrifices for everything, trying to roll over their sins, trying to find it back to perfection with God. And so they had all these traditions, these laws, and yet nothing could change the fact that they were sinners. They were imperfect people. So he tells an, another one. That was for those who found unexpected treasure. Let's look at those who search for treasure. Verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When they found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, Kent, talking about me only here, when I think of this, I think first of the Jews. The Jews that have been looking for the Messiah, that had spent all this time offering sacrifices, reading the Bible, hearing the promises of Isaiah, and expecting a Messiah to come. They were doing their best to do good, so much so that they followed all the laws and all the little laws that the, they, the religious leaders even made up about the mint and the common and how far you could walk on the Sabbath. They did everything possible 
to be right in the sight of God, to have the Messiah come. And these who were looking for the Messiah, who have gathered up every little or big thing they could possibly do to, to do right by God, all of a sudden find the Messiah, and they recognize him for what he's worth. They have tried so hard to do good and be good, and all of a sudden they find the Messiah, the pearl of great price, and they are willing to sell out everything, hold nothing back so they can be there. They're willing to give up the traditions of their faith and all the memories of those times with their mom and dad where they would get a little perfect lamb and keep it at the house for a few days and then walk to Jerusalem and have it sacrificed with all the other lambs. Oh, the wonderful traditions and memories that were associated that we always ate at the same place. They were willing to give it all up for the perfect lamb of God, the pearl of great price. They didn't hold on to their, their riches and their traditions. They gave it all up. And the point of these two parables, however you want to look at them, is to show the importance of giving up all to gain what you cannot get on your own. Because the sorting is coming. And he makes the point again with the next parable. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was laid down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in, the, in baskets but threw the bad away. He's making it very clear. A sorting is coming. It is coming. And in that sorting, evil leads to separation and sorrow. He makes it very clear in the next verse. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Evil causes separation from God. And separation from God, temporary or eternal, and eternal, brings great sorrow and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, life in the kingdom. That's what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis in the kingdom of God. In verse 43, he had asked, whoever has ears, let them hear. And where we started at the beginning, verse 51, have you understood all these things? Are you willing to give it all for the treasure that comes through Jesus? Do you want to find that peace with God and that goodness of God and eternity in the presence of God? That's what life in the kingdom brings. And that's not going to change. Are we willing to give up the old for what we can have now? And I don't know about you, but kingdom living, I think it's worth it. Yes, there's still bad things in this world. But we're to bring goodness into those things and watch God work. And so on the day of sorting we can hear those wonderful words of welcome in. I hope God's spoken to you today in this message. I, uh, I hope that you learn the language of the new kingdom, not of the Gen Z. But I hope we can all learn how to communicate the goodness of God to those we love in this world. Friend, if you've never put on Christ in baptism, I hope today you'll consider it. We just described to you what it looks like to live that. 
But to do so, that means we have to give up everything, joyfully and happily. We are no longer lords of our lives. Those things we give up. We submit to God in the waters of baptism. So if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, won't you give your life to him and come into the kingdom, that new life? Brothers and sisters, some of us have forgotten what it's like to live in the kingdom. We have been blinded by the evil of this world. And maybe it's time for you to come back home, to be restored to kingdom living. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song. A couple of our shepherds and their wives are going to be in the parlor. It is a wonderful way just to go and pray and share briefly with them. If you'd like to do so, I strongly encourage that. If you've never been back there and talked to them, there is a great blessing in just a moment of of sharing and praying together in an intimate setting. We'd also like to come along beside you as a big group. We're going to sing a song. We're actually going to sing Trust and Obey, an old song, I might point out, with a truth that still applies today. Will we trust God and follow his will in this world today? If you need to respond publicly, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.